This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. You are dialed into Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, my guest has been affiliated with the Broadway production of School of Rock, Kelly O'Hare and the Boston Pops, as well as national tours and international productions in Australia and Korea. He is a choreographer, a director, and an educator who uses rhythm as language, posture as punctuation, and movement as a powerful paintbrush to tell better stories. Just ahead, I chat with the extraordinary Patrick O'Neill. Spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Well, geez, if that's not an introduction, my God, Pat Hazel. You earned it. Thank you. Let me just start with, with a kind of a big question. When do you feel the most alive in the theater? Oh, great question. I mean, without a doubt in the room. There's nothing like the moment when you gather people together and you haven't started yet. Everyone has come in, they're eating the the nosh that the producers so lovingly provided. They have a coffee and a bagel and and then everybody gathers in a circle and everyone is nervous and expectant and looking forward to a process. And my favorite time, in those situations, generally, I'm one of the first voices heard to break that silence of that expectation and to to address the idea that this group of people that have never collaborated before and probably will never collaborate again, that exact group, are about to shift the creativity in the world somehow. And whether you're whether we're talking about doing this in a community theater, whether we're talking about doing this at the Royal Opera House, whether we're talking about doing this on Broadway, there are seismic waves that shift from the center of that idea out into the community that sees the theater, and it all starts that day. And a family begins. Immediately it becomes a family, dependent on each other for every number, the way a marching band does, or certain things where no one person can create that event. Yeah, absolutely. It's so amazing you bring that up because depending on what you're doing and where you're doing it, the family could be held together for quite some time, for better or for worse. And you you become brothers and sisters, you become fathers and sons, mothers and daughters and everything in between. And you deal with life, politics, divorces, births, anniversaries, sorrow, joy, all the while adhering to the mission from that moment where The silence is broken. Wow. Since you brought that part of it up, I think you have a very interesting position with School of Rock as associate choreographer because this was a young cast that required them to stay young in order to keep the production alive, which meant you were always having to change family members. And they probably anticipated it was coming up. And when do you leave the family? And when does a new family member come in? And you were a big part of 
probably rehearsing and blocking and being sure somebody was ready to join that. I don't know all the machinations of that, but first of all, give people a sense of what that age group was and how many members were shifting all the time. That would be awesome to find out. Sure. The truth is, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, is that when we started, we didn't really know what we were doing in that idea of replacing kids and finding kids and finding new talent. It's obvious that if the show clicked and it was a hit, that we would have to cultivate new young actors. Traditionally, if someone gets another show, if an adult gets another show, another opportunity comes along, they get a television show, they get a movie, they get they leave. And what happens is, is you have an audition and you hire that replacement and you bring them into the studio and you teach them the show and then you put them in. And it's very piecemeal, it's very one at a time. And so we kind of approached the children that way as well. And what we found is that, as you know, having reared two mm -hmm. young boys, they everyone grows at different rates. And so there are growth spurts. If they go on vacation, they come back and they're three inches taller. And it was just madness. And so what we ended up doing is kind of cultivating a school. There's essentially different graduating classes that are in progress. Exactly. And what would happen is the most difficult, obviously, was this first round of replacements that we had to do because nobody had ever left the show before. And so the first, we very lovingly approached it psychologically with the sacrifices that these kids make. I mean, they were plucked from obscurity. They weren't just a kid. They were like a triple threat kid. Yes. And you know what's crazy about that is that, yes, they were triple threat kids. We were looking for kids who were playing soccer last week. We were looking for authentic children that happened to have hidden savantish qualities. <laughs> just a small order. Just a small Who could order. just thrash on the electric guitar and Right. So like we weren't we did of course find some kids that had lifelong training and were were show kids, but we we really were looking for authentically real students who hung out on the weekends with their friends after their baseball game. And then they'd maybe go to a guitar lesson and realize they had some talent. And we found people who had leaning artistic gifts towards what we needed. And then we had a community that would kind of help cult. We had great guitar coaches and drum coaches and vocal coaches. And we would bring them into the studio and they would ultimately learn their craft. And we joke because we'd have them, I'd have them for about four weeks and they'd leave me with a BFA at nine, oh, 10 wow. or 11 years old, because they have to be fluent in the language when they <laughs> walk out onto that stage. And you would see them do a drum solo and you go, this kid's been playing all their life. Yeah, and truly, I mean, I don't wanna make it sound like, it was like, you know, those little things that you drop in water <laughs> and like a sponge dinosaur happens. These kids were very talented and they, we didn't have to do all of the heavy lifting. They were genuinely gifted and trained, but they maybe weren't dancers or maybe they've never spoken in a crowd before or ever have been on stage before. And we're asking them to go out in front of a thousand people every night and carry a multi-million dollar company in, and represent us and throw them in front of television cameras. It's not normal. Everything about what we ask them to do is not what nine, 10, 11 year olds are supposed to do with their life. It's not what I did with it. So that's why the normalcy of that family was so important because the second that they departed us, they never left the family. They'd come back and visit every day. We'd, I'd have them for 20 minutes uh, before half hour. I'd warm them up. I'd do some notes. And if somebody was walking by that was in the show before, they'd hop in the stage door and come take the warm up. And then they'd hang out. 
and then they'd leave when the show started or cool. at half hour. And so we they still today we're we're actually putting together a project with Broadway Cares, hopefully reuniting some of these kids. And they're forming bands and they have uh, record deals. Right. And I can't claim any responsibility for that. And the show, if I'm being brutally honest, can't claim any responsibility for that other than the fact that we got these creative kids together and they ran with it. I know that Andrew Lloyd Webber gets the rights to the show, puts the musical together for the stage, but I heard something about him giving the education rights. Any school could do it. There was no problem. There no big deal. Like it wasn't held because Broadway was doing it. So in many ways, kids all across the country are able to sing the songs, able to do it at their school. Like they're in a strange way, they're prepping for auditions when they're old enough. Yeah, there's a song There's a song where like everything comes together in the play is called You're in the Band. And that was kind of the motivation behind it is that we were doing a show about kids for kids about the power of music and, and arts education. And Andrew, the man is, is very smart at what he does, said, well, why, why are we keeping this? This should be for kids who are of these kids' age. And what doesn't always get talked about, what Andrew does too, is he pours buckets of money into school systems, primarily in the UK, but while we were running in New York, in New York as well, where there's money for instruments falling from the sky into band programs. And so he's passionate about accessibility. And so this was just a small way that he was able to kind of also share whatever notoriety he's built for himself and success with the you know, arts education community. It was quite a powerful change from the previous works that he did that were so epic in scope, Phantom of the Opera, Cats type things. The famous story is, and I hope I'm not airing his dirty laundry. I think it was like a story in the <laughs> Times and so we're good. But the story is that he's had some problems with transferring into New York, where if you develop it in LA or in Chicago, they build this set and mm -hmm. you move it to New York and it doesn't fit. Things are so complicated and big and expensive and they go wrong. So with us, he decided to workshop it basically in New York. And we did something that nobody's ever done before, which worked for us really well, where we actually did the show off Broadway, kind of. For, we worked for six weeks in a studio. We had like crates and folding tables and folding chairs. And we moved into the Gramercy Theater with 12, 9, 10, and 11-year-olds. And the carpet in the, the lower lobby still smells <laughs> like the rock bands from the 60s. Like, it is a dive, amazing place, dripping with history. And they brought in an incredible light package and a bang and orchestra. And we kind of nuts and bolts put the show up. And what we did was we ran for two weeks in air quotes. With an invited guest list or ticket sales? I was so en engrossed in the schedule. I actually don't know if they sold tickets. I know they offered tickets. And what it was, was if on Monday, we felt the show was ready, we'd perform. And we'd do the show, see what happened. And then we'd take two days to fix it. And then on Thursday, if we felt it was ready, they'd release the tickets. And so there was like a lottery and an, an email list. It was kind of amazing because yeah. there was no pressure to perform that night. If, if we weren't happy with the change, then we'd take another day to fix it. What is the first creative moment you remember in terms of your theatrical beginning? I stumbled upon theater very accidentally. We were, picture it, the late 80s, a station wagon speeding down Route 95 to Washington, D.C. on a family vacation. And my folks had like a green 
gift bag filled with cassette tapes in the front hall closet and we would throw it into the car whenever we went on a road trip and somewhere in delaware i was shuffling through and i found this cassette with a black background and two eyes and it said cats underneath it and i thought it was a band <laughs> i like legit it was like steely dan cats and fleetwood mac and so i just assume, i just assumed it was a band for weeks i was talking about this with, with my you know nine-year-old friends <laughs> somebody's mother sent me straight and was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, a show? I didn't, I didn't understand. The vocabulary wasn't even there. Like I didn't even understand. And the tour came through Boston and my parents bought my brother on, well, all four of us went, obviously right. they didn't send nine and six year old children to the theater by themselves. Thankfully, we sat in the back row at the Schubert in Boston and we stood on our seats the whole time and I was hooked. And now were you yet dancing or no that was not even oh, a no, no 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 okay. no nothing i mean and, and what's hilarious is my parents are fantastically wonderful people but they're not artistically inclined at all it was never in my past it was never in my, my the one thing i that's actually that's unfair the one thing that i do remember is that ever since we, i was very young my parents we'd go to the boston pops my dad loves the boston pops and so for christmas you know you go up to the christmas concert or for the fourth of july you go up for the and so he loved John Williams and loves John Williams. And so I, that I do remember, but we never, no, nobody played instruments. Nobody. Yeah. We were that fan. I grew up Catholic and we were that family that like still, even today, it's hilarious what I do for a living and what I've done for a living. If I go to church with my family at the holidays or if I'm home visiting or whatever, we don't sing. Like we were that family where, you know, there's every, you just stand there and you're there. And that we were not, that there was, there was no singing. There was no dancing. There was no, well, so I don't know where it came from. There must be a couple of things. First of all, you mentioned the Boston pops connection to your dad. So when you got to work there, I know that you were choreographing something for Kelly O'Hara and somebody else. What was, who's the, who's the male lead there? Jason Danieli. Oh, he's just one of Broadway's greatest leading men. But that must have been an amazing opportunity. And, and I'm guessing you invited your folks to that one. Yeah. yeah uh, well, you know what's funny? Some of the coolest things that happen in life fall out of the sky, right? You can plan, you can plan, you can plan, and some of the craziest things happen. So I had assisted on a production of Leonard Bernstein's Mass at the Kennedy Center when they reopened the Opera House. It's, it's actually the production that opened the Kennedy Center back in the 60s. And I met a director from City Opera, we collaborated really well together, who then took me on to do a few other projects with him as his choreographer. And it was he who had called me. I was on the road with Chicago. I just joined the company as an actor. Also not the band. Not just, the band. Well, no, that since you thought Cats was a band, yeah. this was also <laughs> Chicago theatrical musical. Yes. I, I mean, they just put me into the show and I get this phone call saying, can you be in Boston for a week in a month? And it was just the kind of thing, like you said, I mean, I grew up going there and so i i had to ask and they very graciously said yes and so i left the show for a week and yeah it was crazy i mean that really is probably my first artistic memory i mean cats is my first theatrical memory so to walk into that space with those people was tremendous but the the irony of it all is that chicago only gave me X amount of time off. So I never got to see the show. I did a dress rehearsal in the morning and I flew to Ohio that night to go back into the show. So okay. I, my, I, I don't even know if my parents went now that I think about it, because I wasn't there. It would have been had you, again, show business has a way of doing that, which is accelerating your 
pre-production and activities. They don't care if it's Christmas night. You've got a right. show to do. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. All right, so let's talk about dance. See, I had some dance, but I was a senior in high school, and I went to the Omaha Community Playhouse. Now, my parents had some season tickets that they would go with another couple to see the shows, and that meant the kids all stayed home. Well, oftentimes, these other couples would say, we're not interested in a show. So my parents suddenly had four tickets. So I was seeing shows, musicals, and different things that were, I was, and I was taken by the stage craftsmanship. All of the people who worked there were kind of thought in a Broadway sense. They had really inventive set changes, and it was very advanced for community theater. When I was a senior in high school, I came to the arts in the jack-of-all-trades technique. I took a little bit of fencing. <laughs> I took a little bit of dance. I, I was not great at any of them, but I thought, Three Musketeers is coming up. I'm going to learn defense so I can audition. So I had this dance class, and I was the only guy in the dance class, and I wasn't really very agile. That also meant I was in sweatpants and tennis shoes. Like, I was just a kid from the playground. Anyway, that Christmas, I opened a present for my parents. For me, it was the worst gift of all time. I like opened these two boxes. One was Capizio dance shoes, which I don't know where they got the idea or what. And I was like, what? This is, ri this is ridiculous. And then I opened the second one. It was tights. And I was like, <laughs> it was so, for me, it was so brutal. That was it for my whole Christmas. And I, and I just kind of <laughs> sulked all day. And my mom goes, what's wrong? She goes, I thought you really needed these and stuff. And I go, what do you, where did you get that idea? She said, well, I called the dance teacher who really wanted me. She wanted to be able to see my legs and not see sweatpants. So she said, he really needs tights and I want him in, in dance shoes. So my mom was just following a wish list of someone else. And <laughs> it was the experience of being in the dance class was really powerful because there was a lot of freedom in it. Tell me how you, as a choreographer, get people going when you start to be creative with them and how you encourage them to do things that maybe they wouldn't even think of. It's crazy. I mean, it's process. That's kind of what you're talking about. And that's what's so fascinating is that no two processes are the same. And it really depends. If you put me in a room full of dancer, dancer, Broadway dancers, there's a diffusion of ideas that permeates the process where somebody will will come, you know, take take the baton and run with it. And then all of a sudden you've you've, you know, the idea blossoms. But you also have to, I'm working with a friend now who's a television actress, and she is about to shoot a series where she might have to dance a little bit. And so she said, in in these crazy times, we're doing some Zoom curriculum for her and it's about making people feel comfortable and powerful with their body as an instrument and it's it's the greatest teacher i ever had in, in college said if you can figure out how someone can learn you can teach them absolutely anything and so it just depends on what the process is for the actor or the dancer or the musician is to how they absorb information and how they absorb storytelling because at the end of the day i come from a long line of choreographers who came up through the good old days where the giants roamed the earth and it was only about storytelling. And I understand how difficult it is to get work put up. And I understand how difficult it is to create work and what the finances of the world now, how difficult it is to produce. But when it makes me so sad when you see things that are almost there, the storytelling is almost there. And so what I 
have to walk into the room with is this idea about what is the one job we have is to tell the story. That's the only job we have. If that goes well, then we all do well. But if that goes poorly, then it's been a pleasure working with you. And maybe I'll see you on the next one. And so that's the thing is, is it, de- it really depends on the story and, and the limitations that you're given. There's a few things that are coming into my mind where the way the theater works now, everybody has to do everything. And especially if it's a smaller show, you need people who can sing. I'm thinking specifically about a project that we're developing now about the fall of the Berlin Wall and about a bunch of teen rebels who are kind of like behind. I can't give away too much about it, but a, a, t- a group of teen rebels that play a, a large part in it and why and how. And so what that means is, is you have to find people of a certain age who have the chops to sing what we need them to sing. And then I also need to find an ensemble of people who can cover them. And so I need an ensemble that can sing just as well as they can, which sometimes might mean that they're not necessarily speaking a dance language first. And so what that does to most ears, I think, tells you, oh, well, then it's not going to be a show that moves. And I look at it going, well, that's not true. I mean, it's it's just going to move differently than it would if it was the producers. And you looked through a lens of telling a story. How critical is movement to that storytelling? Because I worked with you and I was amazed. It was a stage reading we did and really, really specific yeah. about moving and entrances and exits and how people got it from chairs and what happened to their music stand. Like there's so much that you are thinking of that most people aren't like gravity and pushing and pulling and yeah. tension. And so, I mean, I'm really, I guess most of our listeners probably aren't speaking this language, but kind of tell us a little bit about how you look at movement in storytelling. It's a little bit of anthropology, really. We are not verbal beings by design. We're not. We're supposed to be howling at the moon and grunting in the woods. We had the someone long ago had the wherewithal to phonate, and now we all have the the wonderful ability to communicate this way but we weren't built this way what we were built for is to observe and to take things in so movement and physical presence is the first step in storytelling i mean it's the first thing you you notice about anybody walking down the street is what they look like how they move how they fit into the group of people in the subway car is somebody short are they smelly are they there's like observations that we taken through our senses before you are psychologically inclined to respond. And so that's the part that movement plays in the work that I love to create is that it does all of those things, but it also creates location and mood and tension and release. And you can see that in dance pieces and ballets and silent, contemporary silent film, where you don't need words to tell a story. The singing, the, the text should all come from this beautiful pillow of physicality that is kind of the thesis to whatever it is that you're building. And I'm not even talking about dance. It doesn't even need to be about dance. I mean, you go see Richard III. If he doesn't have a hunchback and is limping, then it's not really the Richard III that we all know. And so while that might be an interesting take, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's a whole different take on something, that's how you identify the flawed character. You know, there's so much before he even opens his mouth. Well, on Seinfeld, Kramer used to make the greatest physical entrances to the doorway some days he would glide in on his shoes. Sometimes he would hit the door jam. Michael Richards consciously came in that door 
off balance in different ways that was not, he was not directed. He was, in fact, Larry David was initially frustrated that he would get this big laugh and applause before he spoke because of the way he came in. And it was almost like Jackie Gleason entering on the honeymooners where he would come in and spread his arm like, ha, 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 and then the audience would applaud. And Larry was like, I don't want him to do that. I was like, that's how he entered. At that time, I was a studio audience warm-up comedian having drawn a short straw. And so he would say to me, tell the audience not to applaud or laugh. I go, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not stopping a ocean wave that's coming at me. I mean, he learned to appreciate it, but boy, I'll tell you the early <laughs> episodes, he's like, that's just taking time away from the show. I go, they love it. Why would you take away something they like? Okay. No frosting yeah. on the cake this birthday, everybody. Yeah. And running with that, it's the same reason why something like noise is off or like all of Neil Simon works because it's all based in physicality. And even you talking about Seinfeld, I mean, I was in like seventh grade, I guess there was an episode of Frasier that was coming up on, I don't know what day it was airing at that point, but they kept tooting that it's the funniest four minutes on television, in television history. Like they were building it up and building it up. And I was like, well, I got to see this. And David Hyde Pierce did the cold open of the show and he was ironing a shirt and he pricked himself on a pin that was like, you know, holding it all together. And it was this cacophony of humor about him being appalled by the blood and not getting it on the shirt that he's ironing and fainting whenever he sees the blood. And there was not a word spoken. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And so that's kind of when, when we talk about dance or when we talk about movement, there's only storytelling. It, it all has to accomplish what David Hyde Pierce did, what Michael Richards did. And what, what I get to do is I usually get like a groovy composer to kind of help build a, a really specific sonic scenario that aids me in accomplishing that. Well, that's, that is interesting to have collaborators you're at the origin story of, of a development of a musical or even a drama where you can dictate, here's what I need. Here's the emotion I want to create as they enter. And here's the dynamic I want. So that's a bonus level for people to be able to think it and then tell someone else and say, come back with this and help out. What's funny too, is that there's the, you know, you, you go see a Broadway show and you read through credits in the back or, in, you know, on the, on the title page. And there's always a, a, a position or two that everyone's like, what, huh? what? And same thing in film, you watch the credits on the film and you know, you go, what do they do? What are they? And my best friend in the process is something called a dance arranger where what back in the old days, Irving Berlin or Kandra Neb would write an ABA song. They'd write a charming song that was bouncy and did the thing. And then all of a sudden it was inserted into the play and it just was a song. As the, the medium evolved, as the American musical evolved, we started using dance in different ways to tell stories. And so what you do is you take the melodies that are the composer writes and you hire a dance arranger who sits in a room with the choreographer and you go, okay, where do we have to be by the end of this song? What do we have to know? Who needs to change? What is the conflict? What do we learn? And so then the dance arranger and the choreographer will come together and create dance arrangements where that's why there's these dance breaks. That's how you build those dance breaks is you go, you get a musician who knows how to tell stories through music. And it's not just an ABA song. It's a, a verse, chorus, a verse, 
huge dance break with lots of key changes and accidentals and percussion into another key change where the chorus comes back in and takes us home. And we accomplish all of those things. And there are legendary dance arrangers that the general public probably doesn't know their names, but let me tell you, we do. That architecture in building something like a musical is very much about where does this belong in the plot? Where have they reached a level that we actually need to have this energy? I mean, it can be all kinds of things, but oftentimes it's some great urgency. It's some big comic novelty tap number. It sort of opens everybody's mind up at that moment. And they're certainly looking for things like that at act breaks. And I've noticed, and maybe you can speak to this, over the last 10 years, the ending is let's let the choreographer go to town. Like this is like, it's time for the craziest bow that everybody's involved. So tell me about when did that really start to arrive as opposed to everybody standing in line and, and looking down the line to bow their head at the same time? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny because I think it always was there to a degree. It's just how we adopt it. I mean, it all kind of comes from, you know, the Ziegfeld Follies. And it all kind of comes from that 20s and 30s and 40s where you know, it's a carryover in a way from vaudeville. And then when you look at the way the, the medium developed after that, so 1944, Oklahoma happened, right? The change of the industry. All of a sudden, we were interested in narrative storytelling instead of kick lines and feathers. So all of a sudden, we were actually interest, interested in telling stories. But that didn't mean the kick lines and the feathers went away. And then as the 40s and 50s went on and the book musical really started to develop and we were getting things from and through the 60s, anything from what we're talking about is, oh my gosh, hair to Man of La Mancha to Guys and Dolls to Wonderful Town, Comden and Green were running crazy doing. And so what happens is, is stylistically, there isn't that kind of transition where there was Showgirls and Vaudeville and the Follies. And then there was Broadway and people mm -hmm. were used to seeing this. We carried it through. And so the, you have the Hotbox Girls and Guys and Dolls. You know, there's a nightclub. And depending on how you do it, some either they're Ziegfeld-esque people or they're maybe people who couldn't get a job at the Ziegfeld Follies. And so they're maybe uh, an interesting crop of chorus dancers. There are so many different styles, like in West Side Story, it's very ballet this is not a gang. Yeah. These guys aren't going to last in a fight. Yes. Most of these guys, but it was beautifully done. And at that time, it was a choice. Yes, exactly. And so we, to this day, carry that idea of song and dance and celebration and musical comedy into today. I mean, you don't see the phantom curtain call like that, but my God, Susan Stroman does something where there's tap dancing and there is a curtain call like you wouldn't believe. Right, but that's a good example because Susan is both a director and choreographer and as are you. So maybe there was a lot more of that Casey Nicolau folks came in that really wanted both. Yeah. And then it got really competitive. I can't remember. I saw one of those door slamming farces. Oh, Boeing, Boeing. Boeing, Boeing. Okay, and that wasn't really a musical. No, no, no. But they had the biggest musical bow crazy like i was like wait a minute there's a musical after the comedy like <laughs> i mean it was amazing that what they did with luggage and airport carts and people and stewardesses that looked like old twa steward i mean it was really an extraordinary 
button on the end of the show. And that's the thing is that in musical comedy, it, it does feel like a cadence. It feels like a send off. It feels like something that culminates. And in the evening, and I keep talking about Stroman because she's brilliant, but her curtain calls are choreographed. So there's what feels like an epilogue almost. It's not street clothes per se, but the curtain calls are in the theme of the show, but you're you're dancing out as a human being and not as a cowboy in Oklahoma, necessarily. <laughs> if we're talking about Oklahoma, I, I was lucky enough to do her Oklahoma on the road when I was a spring chicken. Now, just for the listener, you didn't play an actual spring chicken, but, but no. you were young. What were you in the show? No, we cut the spring chicken from that production of Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the chorus of that. I had replaced on the road in that, so I did it for about five months, I guess. I was out there. And um, you know, did the whole shebang. I mean, what's so funny is it's three hours long. And especially as a young actor, I remember just wanting to work. And I, I got the job and I they flew me. I joined the company, I think, in Indianapolis. And they flew me to Indianapolis. I get off the plane. I check in at my hotel. I go see the show that night. And I, you're like, oh, it's still going. Oh, it's still, I mean, three hours long and i didn't make an entrance for 45 minutes so you'd show up at half hour you could eat the biggest dinner you want and then by the time the ballet comes around at the end of act one you've digested it and you can like you can you're you're in good shape so it was kind of a crazy crazy experience because it was so atypical the dancers are then all going out to the nightclub afterwards and this is what used to blow my mind i would stay at a hotel we would go to the bar and it would be after hours and all the dancers would be coming in pouring out of one van i was like how can they even wake up tomorrow <laughs> and physically do this show i mean they weren't stumbling drunk they just were in a place of celebration where after dancing for three hours in a show then they go out dancing and drinking yeah. and something and it's like you'd see them in the morning at the airport sleeping on their duffel bags yeah. you know all sprawled out but but somehow there's some kind of resuscitation device where they can always hit the boards and just be like 100% ready. And when you're on the road, it's different. It just is because you you live in a bubble a little bit. On the road, the schedule is really great because generally you don't do matinees during the week. It's not like New York. There's relatively less tourism in the cities across the country during the week. The weekends are tough. You do a show Friday night, you do a, show, a matinee Saturday, an evening, and then a matinee on Sunday and an evening, and then you travel on Monday. So Friday through Monday is pretty intense, but you touch down in Memphis on Monday night and you just have the show to do. And so you've got all Monday night, all day Tuesday, you go do the show. You have all day Wednesday, you do the show. You have all day Thursday, you do the show. And so when you're 22, you can you can bounce around a little bit afterwards and go get a pizza. And, and now I'm I mean I don't even I'm embarrassed to tell you what time I went to bed last night. But when I, back in the day, you bounced back. <laughs> but you're not indicating that you went to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You're saying that you went to bed at 8:15. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> You mentioned a place to me, Turks and Caicos. Did you go to the islands somewhere? We love is Tulum in Mexico. So I'm just curious in terms of what you do, like what creatively you do when you're taking a break from this action. Where do you go? What is your peaceful approach to reset? Yeah. I mean, talk about a reset. That's kind of the the theme of the last six or eight months, huh? And as well as when you kind of take a break. It's funny. What do I do? It's But do you do you sit still or I mean like and I don't mean that like you're not capable of yeah. it, but everything in your work is adrenaline. Yeah. And you're in this at the time, let's not let's say 
pre-pandemic. Right, right, right. right. Uh, you, you probably didn't watch the amount of Netflix that you're watching now. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. I think we all do. We feed off of that kinetic energy the working gives us. There's this fallacy that everywhere across this country we've adopted, but particularly in show business, that more is more and that if you have no time, then you're successful because that means your time is in demand. And what's really tricky about that is we all believe it for a lot of our lives. And then at, at certain points, we run ourselves into the ground. If you don't plug in the Tesla, you're not getting a Sheboygan. So you've got to charge the battery. You've got to charge the battery. <laughs> that is your next musical. <laughs> the Tesla to Sheboygan. Let me be very transparent. I understand that making a basic general observation like that sounds very informed. I'm not very good at it. I'm not good at it. I love to sit still but my brain kind of always has to be moving. I, I love to read I, when you know there's downtime. I love learning languages. It's kind of like my dorky thing to do. And what's funny is in this time, it's been really interesting because you can't see people. I mean, we can do this like we're doing now where I'm seeing you on a computer screen, but it's not. we're not breathing the same air. We're not actually sharing space. And so it's different right now. And that is something that I find when there is a lull, I do tend to want to be with people, whether that's my family or friends I haven't seen or people who have relocated to say the West Coast or to the UK or and it, you, you go see people for a few days because there's something about and we all have these people in our lives. There's something about people who are our loved ones. And there's something about people who are our loved ones in the business who you don't have to talk about work with, but you get to be around creative, brilliant people, but not necessarily have to talk about work. And that's kind of the best. Like when you, you have some downtime and you can be with your tribe, be with your sandbox, but not necessarily have expectation of result put on it. I understand that. And I do think like when I was a kid, this TV show called The Rookies, it was like a cop show. And always at the end, they were at some pizza parlor and the wife of the rookies were also there. Like, but they didn't have to say anything. They all just were like, yeah, that's what it's like to be married to a rookie. Like they had a group. And I think that any time, whatever that subculture is, whether I'm with playwrights or songwriters or anybody in a, some kind of creative malu, that's when I feel the most at home. There's a comfort to going, oh, they've fought the war that I fought. So we don't have to talk about it. Yeah, I've been teaching a lot during this time. And I've been teaching and, and coaching a lot of young actors who are just out of school, who unfortunately, this is the, the industry that they kind of fell off their turnip truck into. And it's a difficult time for everybody. But I can't imagine kind of standing at the edge of the diving board, taking the bounce, and then this happening. And so I, it's been really illuminating and wonderful. But they're experience has been so interesting to observe and discuss because it gives me such hope for the future. They are so hungry for it and they're so hungry to make stuff and hungry to create things and create opportunities. And, you know, this drought, this, I won't even call it a creative drought because we're all being creative in our own ways, but this, this it's a, a pandemic pause. Yeah. This, this community drought, we're not necessarily allowed to be a community right now. And this is lighting a fire and I'm kind of terrified of them. Like in 10 years, they're going to be taking 
these ideas to the street, after they've had a few life opportunities, they're going to change the way the world and, and, and our business works. They're the future. And it's been incredible to kind of see how they are dealing with this adversity. And I also, you know, look back at it going, I don't know how I would have handled this time, you know, if this was my reality. They're leading the way. I mean, we don't see it yet. And that's what I think is so exciting. Can you impart some wisdom right now, though, as a teacher and as a person who does speak to newcomers that come into this, we typically look for some kind of a creative spark or something to get people jazzed up that they can do today or this week, just some little mini guidance. I would love to. Actually, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And I right now I work with a company called the Lexington Theater Company. They're based out of Lexington, Kentucky. They're an incredible theater, but they also do incredible arts education. And right now they're doing a lot of stuff online. It's founded by, uh, an, I hate saying old friend because she's in the prime of her life. But Lindy Franklin Smith and her husband, Jeremy Smith, they do incredible, 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 incredible work. And she and I teach a class together every Saturday to a lot of these young artists who are stalled or uh, because of the pandemic. One of the things that she talks about that I love, and it's something that we can do now in this time. And it actually answers a lot of questions for me is there's a great author called Simon Sinek, who wrote a book called Find Your Why. It's a great book. I, I get no royalty. I get no percentage of any book sales from Mr. Sinek. He also has a great TED Talk. And the TED Talk talks about they use like computer manufacturing as an example. Why did Apple take off the way it did? Why, why are people so diehard? And it all comes down to why they do what they do. It's this idea about building yourself a why statement. Yes, should we all be writing the next great American play? Yes. Should we be writing pilots? Sure. Should you be coming up with ideas for your new ballet? Absolutely. When is the next great novel coming out? I don't know. Why don't you write it? But to take a step back from that pressure and think about why we want to do those things. And if we can put that into writing, it shifts the way we interact with the work. And the, what I love about it is that it's something that isn't necessarily a quick fix for singing and dancing or a quick fix for video production. It's something that kind of becomes a standard for your creative life and your life beyond. If you're having a bad year, say, and you have to work at Starbucks so you can make a living and get some health insurance, you can still use that same why working at Starbucks that you are when you're making the next great American play. And the, the basic, basic, basic formula is I verb so that impact. And you just fill in what your verb is and what your impact is. And it should feel like you've put your life in a beautiful Ina Garten casserole on the stove and boiled it down. So your verb isn't about singing and dancing or your verb, but your verb is about communicating and, and connecting and building relationships or making people feel less alone. I guess that's a little specific, but so that impact that the world, so that you nurture and develop creative projects or whatever. And so if you, I, verb, so that impact and just kind of noodle with that, and that all of a sudden becomes a beacon by which you might feel steered in the direction to do whatever it is you're supposed to do. And you find your why. You can still love things, other things that also operate from the same why. Well, that speaks to purpose. Why often speaks to purpose which is driven by passion. In fact, I think, I want to say it was Twyla Tharp, but somebody used to have a thing 
they an exercise they did called do a verb. I don't know if that you're familiar with that, but it was basically pick a verb, act it out physically. But that yeah. was a way to get people yeah. moving, get them up and moving or whatever. But I love the why statement. I think it's amazing. It's really powerful. And I guess I would ask you at this moment, this is kind of a exit question, but it's a big one. Well, what is your greatest creative ambition? Oh, okay. Oh, gosh. Okay. And um, what you have to do to achieve that, meaning this is a forward thinking statement. And I'm not saying you're making us a promise, but you must have something you've been that you've been thinking about for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. This, this is, and I talked about this this week too with someone, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a journey here, but we'll get back to it. I promise. I have always had a hard time answering the question, what's, especially when I was acting, I'm not, I'm not really performing anymore. So that this question doesn't come up, but when people go, what are your dream roles? What do, what shows do you want to do? What parts do you want to play? And I, I ran from that question, like you couldn't believe and I, somewhat shamefully for a number of years going, well, surely I should say this, or surely I should say that, or I'm sure there's, there's an answer. And it took me time, but I realized that it, for me, it was never about the product. It wasn't about doing this show or doing that thing or doing a film at this studio or doing a, a TV show on this network. It was always, it always has been about the relationships and to a fault sometimes where you go, I want to work with, say, Stephen Sondheim or Meryl Streep. Or, and, and I can't necessarily tell you what that is, but I know, and, and, and let me reduce it because for me right now, it's about theatrical relationships. It's about other directors I'd love to work for, or about designers I want to work with, or actors I think are interesting that I want to develop a project for. And so that's, what's really interesting is that I still find myself thinking that way today. And I mean, I would love to have a show running on every continent. I think that would be a lovely thing to achieve. But I also go, if the show sucks, but it's successful, I don't necessarily think I'm going to be find pride in it. And so I, I have always and continue to kind of hitch my star to this idea that it has to be about the relationship that you're building. And ultimately, if I trust an artist, designer, actor, fellow creator to tell a story with, then I know that whatever is going to be cultivated, whatever is going to be created is going to come from a place of storytelling and passion and excitement in a way that even if the project fails, it will have succeeded. Because what we have done is created a room and created a company that is inspired and motivated in love with telling this story. And I would rather at my memorial, people talk about that than talk about how much money my shows made, or how many companies were in North America, or, you know, whatever other insert metric of success here, because I have had a great life. And I know how to make $5 stretch for <laughs> as long as it can, I'm gonna be fine. So when I look at that, you know, I, I've been very poor, and I've been comfortable, and I've been poor again. And you look at that, and you go, I know I'm gonna make it, I'm going to survive this time that I've been placed here. So how the hell do you want to fill it? And I just go, that to me is success, is building supportive, creative relationships that are passionate about telling stories. Well, you've done it with me. No, our working together, 
was a very, very powerful connection that has led us to be friends and even to this conversation. I'm grateful that you share this information about story, about rhythm, about movement, and for, in fact, moving us as well today. So, Patrick, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure, my friend. It's so good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.